Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And good morning, it's Annie and... Kim, good morning everyone. I'm a bit fragile today, Kim. I'm glad to see you. Yes, I am feeling a bit fragile today. Yeah, she's a bit injured, so we've got to be careful with her. <laughs> today. But anyway, there's been a big news. I mean, a bit of an update on uh, Stick Together, the Hutchinson's dispute. There's been a bit of a movement forward. Yeah, the court has found in favour of the MUAU. Apparently it is not notice. It's not sufficient notice to send a text message in the middle of the night saying, check your emails and then sack you. Oh, surprise, surprise. Mm, that's not consulting. <laughs> it's unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. Unbelievable. Anyway, so there's been a stay. It's not a victory, uh, but it is a victory of sorts because it means that uh, Bob Carnegie, the fellow that's uh, running the MUA in um, Queensland, uh, is quick to uh, uh, and strategic enough to uh, to put things on the uh, negotiations on a good footing. Mm. He knows how to use the system, which is a good sign, I like to say. Well, if you can't win, you delay for the moment. <laughs> That's right, and drag with your heels in the dirt. So good, more, uh, more strength to their arm. Uh, also, the big news, of course, is uh, uh, Hayden, the uh, head of the Royal Commission, has been outed as an absolute uh, Liberal Party plant, as it were. Uh, yep. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's it was obvious from the beginning because... Well, yeah. To, to anyone, really, but to accept an invitation to speak at a Liberal Party fundraiser. Uh, the keynote speaker. The keynote speaker. And then claim that you didn't realise it was a Liberal Party fundraiser, fundraiser, even though the invitation says the logo and says here you can donate to the Liberal Party of New South Wales and all the rest of it. Ludicrous. Mm. Ludicrous. Anyway, uh, fabulous stuff. And it even appeared in the Sun-Herald. How about that? Um, it was on the uh, top of the uh, inside page on uh, the Sun Herald, I must say. But uh, even um, the readers there couldn't have missed it. So there you go. Yeah, I saw a poll in The Age that was um, asking, or do you think that um, Hayden should step down? Um, You know, do you think that it's okay? Um, And I think a third option was, do you think they should scrap the Royal Commission? And most people went with, you should scrap the Royal Commission. It was like 51%. Yeah, well, that's right, because they haven't actually got much for their uh, millions and millions of dollars, have they? No. No, it's pretty outrageous. Not even a keynote speaker, it would seem. (laughs) Anyway, today we're going to be uh, talking to uh, Claire Ozich. 
Uh, she's the Executive Director of the Australian Institute of Employment Rights. Now, why are we talking to her? Because uh, this uh, federal government's been uh, doing a variety of uh, um, investigations and uh, she, uh, we've just got the uh, interim report from the Law Reform Commission. Uh, which has been uh, looking into Freedoms, Freedoms Inquiry, instituted by Mr George Brandis, our Attorney-General. And uh, what it's supposed to be uh, talking about is, uh, looking into is uh, how Commonwealth law has been impinging or has not been impinging on our traditional freedoms, apparently. So if you've been feeling the chilly wind of uh, lack of freedom in the area of workers' rights, then listen in. We're also going to be uh, getting some excerpts from the Speak Out on 7th of August at Melbourne City Square called By No Room for Racism to celebrate three victories against Reclaim Australia and the United Patriotic Front. They were joined by 50 police and a lone UPF supporter. So (laughs) That's a bit sad, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. He was routed severely by uh, the uh, person on the mic, I'll have to say. Uh, we're going to have rank and file. This this is the week that was. And later on, Dr Noah Pazilf, back from overseas, from Macquarie University, is going to talk current politics. Hi, Ivan Hexter here. When the community battle against East West Link started with drilling behind my house, I took my camera out. 60 hours of footage later... I need your help to tell this community story. The sheer arrogance of a government trying to foist a multi-billion dollar project on us. Tunnel Vision, the story of right beating might. Donate to the Tunnel Vision crowdfunding campaign to be part of the Tunnel Vision project. www.chuffed.org That's www.chuffed.org then look for Tunnel Vision. Be part of Tunnel Vision, the real story of the East-West Link. If the person in front of you has got a belt on, hold on to the belt in front of you. Tunnel Vision is a 3CR supporter. Yeah, do your stuff. <laughs> Everyone's asking for, for favours and money. <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah, that's right. It, it uh, means that uh, the message can get out there and it's important to uh, document your victories, I'll have to say. To learn from them and to celebrate them. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, so uh, we're going to now have a listen to what Claire Orich from the Executive Director of the Australian Institute of Employment Rights has to say about this uh, Freedoms Inquiry. It's particularly focused on the industrial relations law and the uh, uh, Fair Work Act 2009, uh, which I'll have to say was instituted by a Labor government. So there you go. Okay, now what we want to talk about here is the uh, Freedoms Inquiry that's been put together by, uh, called for by the Attorney-General, Mr Brandis. Can you give us a background to what this is all about? Well, when the new uh, Abbott government came into power, the new Attorney-General, Senator George Brandis, uh, asked the Australian Law Reform Commission to hold an inquiry into, quote, traditional rights and freedoms, close quote. Uh, Senator Brandis likes to position himself as a sort of purveyor of true 
small L liberalism concerned with uh, people's rights and freedoms. Um, and in that vein, he asked the Law Reform Commission to conduct this inquiry, which looks at, um, which focuses on where Commonwealth laws, so where legislation, is deemed to encroach upon traditional uh, traditional laws and freedoms. In particular interest is uh, workplace relations law. Yeah, sure. So. Um, under international law, um, established primarily through human rights conventions and the conventions of the International Labour Organisation, um, freedom of association encompasses, um, in, in the context of labour relations, the right to form and join trade unions. Uh, not only to form and join trade unions, but to exercise the rights that, uh, and a- activities that trade unions are formed to pursue. Uh, and uh, two of those uh, in particular... Uh, rights to collective bargaining and associated with that, the right to take industrial action. Yeah. Now, under the Fair Work Act, which, as you point out, was um, legislation introduced by the previous Labor government um, after getting rid of work choices, um, there, there are a number of limitations uh, on the freedom of association as it is recognised in international law. Um, the Fair Work Act, while it abolished the Howard government's work choices legislation, kept in many ways its architecture, uh, and that's seen quite clearly in the rules relating to collective bargaining and um, industrial uh, t- the taking of industrial action. So in particular, in relation to collective bargaining, there are a, a couple of really key areas where um, our current laws uh, encroach on the freedom of association. One is the uh, level of bargaining. So in under Australian law, uh, you can only undertake collective bargaining lawfully under the Fair Work Act if it's at the enterprise level, so only kind of one business at a time. You can't do any pattern bargaining, but of course the employer can. That's right. And and really under, under true freedom of association, it's up to the employees and the employers to decide what level of bargaining they want to, they, they want to conduct, uh, whether it's at an industry level, whether it's at a, um, a number of enterprises um, together. Um, it's up to them to decide. Now, as you point out, employers are able to patent bargain. They can get together and decide um, kind of terms and conditions. In fact, act a little <laughs> bit like a cartel. That's right. Um, whereas um, employees or workers um, can't. Uh, so that's uh, one of the, the main limitations. Um, and the second one is um, you can, under Australian law, you can only bargain over certain matters that are listed in the Fair Work Act. Um, and there are certain matters that you cannot bargain about, otherwise your your bargaining activity is unlawful under the Act. Uh, and once again, there's no really no justification for there to be limitations on the content of the matters over which um, workers are bargaining uh, with their employers about. So those are the two kind of main um, unnecess- well, what we believe to be unnecessary re- restrictions in the Fair Work Act when it comes to collective bargaining. Uh, and when it comes to the right to take industrial action, now again, the the right to take industrial action is recognised uh, at in, international law and recognised under this notion of freedom of association, is the right for workers to take industrial action in their economic and social interests. Uh, it's a recognition that uh, in our society, the way our economy operates, workers uh, acting collectively are the only... Uh, uh, way that they can, uh, that we, uh, as workers, employees in our society, can have sufficient power over the power of capital, uh, over the power of the bosses. 
Uh, and this is, of course, a very general right of freedom of association in the sense that, you know, one of the other ways that we as citizens, um, you know, collectively exercise our power is, uh, you know, through taking to the streets, uh, marching, protesting, uh, blockading, barricading, etc. So it's a similar, um, <coughs> you know, similar kind of right. Now, under uh, under uh, the Fair Work Act, industrial um, action is severely limited in in the in the same way as industrial action was limited under the Work Choices legislation. So it's limited in the sense that you can only lawfully take place in relation to uh, lawful collective bargaining. So those restrictions that I mentioned before about collective bargaining also apply uh, to taking industrial action. So you have to be taking collective bargaining only over certain matters and only at an enterprise level. And also so, other people aren't to, uh, will be prosecuted if they go out in sympathy. That's right. So we have um, restrictions on, on the court secondary boycotts. Yeah, that's right. Um, and as well as that kind of fundamental issue around um, it being limited um, in, in connection to, to collective bargaining, so not sort of broadly about economic or social rights, um, there are also in the Fair Work Act a number of um, procedural requirements that, in fact, the International Labour Organisation has found to be unnecessarily restrictive. So there are, um, and what you're talking about there are things like uh, uh, the level of setting the criteria for the vote and how the right. vote so will be taken. So what that's they're doing right. is yeah. intruding into the uh, real processes of an organisation to run their own affairs, basically. Yeah, that's right. So our unions um, uh, should be able to be run, that must, well, A, they should be uh, democratic, um, uh, and they should be run without any uh, interference from government or, em- em- or employers. What it looks like is uh, you've got, uh, I mean, uh, this uh, Freedoms uh, Inquiry may or may not find this, but it looks like you've got the uh, wolf deciding how the chicken should behave. That's right. And these are, in our view, um, and in the view of the International Labour Organisation, unnecessary restrictions um, on the freedom of association. Uh, And the uh, International Labour Organisation, as I've mentioned, has found that Australia is um, uh, essentially breaching uh, freedom of association conventions um, with its restrictions on collective bargaining. If we look at that idea again about uh, using um, procedures to curtail people's uh, right to express and to uh, associate and to uh, take action in protection of their own conditions and wages, uh, you can also look at things like uh, the right of entry arrangements that have been used. So they'll say that uh, the only people who can have a right of entry as a representative of a union is a right and proper person, but then they set up the... It's a bit like the uh, uh, the White Australia policy where you can uh, tell a person that, sure, you can come in as long as you can uh, translate a piece of uh, Russian text or something. <laughs> look, yeah, look, that's right. And again, the International Labour Organisation has found that... Um, uh, the right of entry provisions in the Fair Work Act breach the freedom of association uh, rights. Um, 
because, again, you're seeing this um, outside body looking to control what is the basic activity of trade unions, um, and that is the trade unions going and talking to their members um, and all their potential members in a, in a workplace. Uh, the Freedom's Inquiry put out its uh, interim report in late July. They Just before they put brought out this report, it appears that the government has now appointed a uh, key neoliberal academic to the board. Have you got any comment about that? Oh, I hadn't. Uh, I hadn't seen that, but it doesn't. Uh, it does not surprise me uh, one iota. Um, look, you know, we've got a couple of um, big inquiries running at the moment from this government, um, and both of them are due to report in December. The other one, of course, being the Productivity Commission um, inquiry into the workplace relations system, which released its draft report um, last week as well. And I think both of these reports um, have been a little bit of a disappointment for government. This Freedoms report demonstrates not just in the area of workplace relations, but in a number of other very important areas, um, including obviously a lot of the national security areas that this government is clearly overstepping the mark, or this government and previous governments have been clearly overstepping the mark when it comes to respecting um, Australians' um, rights and freedoms. So, no, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me at all that um, the government's put a, um, a neoliberal academic on the board, um, perhaps to try and, try and uh, rein this report in a little bit. It's yeah. one of the important um, democratic things that we have in Australia is, is these sorts of independent institutions whether it be the Productivity Commission or the Australian Law Reform Commission, um, that, that the government can put these inquiries to them, but they're not, they don't know exactly what they're going to get from them. And I think um, both of these uh, inquiries have, uh, have shown that. I think this report is a, a good report in, in the sense that you have a body like the Australian Law Reform Commission accepting our submissions, accepting the submissions of the ACTU and putting it down in black and white that the Fair Work Act um, is not actually... Um, Living up to or representing the true freedom of association rights uh, that we that we should be experiencing in Australia. And there you go. Uh, so very interesting stuff about. And as you were saying, it sounds terribly. It sounds terribly like um, 1984, doesn't it? The Ministry of Love and the Ministry of War. We've got the um, Fair Work and the Freedom Commission. Yeah, no, absolutely, the Freedom's Inquiry. And uh, people should remember, of course, that the original title of 1984 was actually 1948. Oh, really? That's right. They thought they should make it futuristic. Oh. Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> anyway, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and uh, we're uh, going to move along. We have to move along fairly briskly, actually, because uh, we've got lots of things to uh, put on your breakfast table this morning. Uh, I went down to the uh, speak out. That's what they called it. Uh, Kim, they called it a speak out. It was uh, on the 7th of August, and it was at, uh, on Friday night, and it was on the, at the City Square. Mm. And uh, it was called by the uh, No Room for Racism people. And as I said, it was to uh, celebrate victory of uh, three times uh, routing Reclaim Australia and uh, the United Patriotic Front on the uh, streets of Melbourne. Um, you always lose in, in Melbourne, they said. And, <laughs> yes. And forgive me for saying it, though, they go, you always lose in Melbourne. Fuck off. <laughs> Yes, there were quite a lot of chants like that. I think they were we kind of taken from the football chant. That's right, <laughs> and they enjoy it. Yes. And there's a whole crew of youngsters who, youngins who really enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> and I actually must say there's quite a few older ones who enjoy it too, I'll have to say. Uh, but anyway, uh, so what I collected, I did collect the whole thing, but uh, I wanted to particularly bring your attention to two speeches. One of them was by a fellow who is a Kurdish refugee who uh, p- put racism in its place, actually, a racism in Australia in its place. And it's followed by Steve Jolly, who you might remember. Uh, well, Steve Jolly, of course, is uh, a socialist councillor for Yarra, but um, that he was being threatened personally. Uh, with uh, from some UPF uh, fellow who was ringing up uh, and making disgusting suggestions on the phone at the council against... Yes, and threatening his family. And threatening his family until finally that person was arrested. So he, this is his uh, talk back after that event. So let's go. Our next speaker uh, is Reza Yaramadi. First, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we're standing on the voluntary people and pay more respect to their elders past and present. Uh, uh, my name is Reza. I'm a Kurdish refugee from Iran and I came to Australia in 2009 as a refugee. I came by boat. I'm one of those dangerous people and I'm here to take over the country. <laughs> Yeah, I came, and one of the reasons that I left Iran, I flee my country, I've left my loved ones, my family, you know, my nieces, everyone, my friends back home, is because I was victim of racism. Kurdish are victim of racism in Iraq, Syria, Iran, Turkey, wherever. We got 40 million stateless Kurdish around the world. No homeland. And they don't want us. Wherever we go, they don't want us because we're Kurdish. And I'm in touch with people from different communities, from different countries, because I'm visiting detention center, and I used to work with people from different countries, refugees who come here by boat. And I'm hearing, I'm listening to their stories, some disgusting things I hear from them, that they have been called this and that because of their color on the street, because of their language, because of the country they come from, because of the way they come to Australia. Even myself, I'm going to share a story with you. One day I came back from work and I was very tired. I decided to have a shower and go to a local bar, have a couple of beers. It was very Australian. <laughs> I went to the bar, I was sitting there drinking my beer and there was a guy came, a white guy sat next to me and said, Hey, you going? <laughs> yeah, I'm alright, how are you? Yeah, not bad. Had a big day. So yeah, I had a big day too, I'm exhausted. And then he started like, what nationality are you? Does it make any difference? So I speak English, what do you want to know? And I said, well, I'm from Iran. Oh, Arab. So no, I'm not Arab. Muslim. I'm not Muslim. Even if I'm Muslim, what does it make any difference? And he said, you know, your bloody brothers are killing our friends. You know, me mate was killed in Afghanistan. How is my business? Your mate was killed in Afghanistan. I didn't kill your mate. Yeah? This is disgusting. Such a behavior is not acceptable. Australia is a multicultural country. People are here from all over the world, different colors, different languages, yeah? different way of life. You know, you Muslim. What's wrong? Look, I've got lots of Muslim friends. They're the loveliest people that I know. Islam is a peaceful religion. They're very nice people. What's your problem? They're here to take over the country. If 2% of the population can take over your country, then Go and kill yourself. 
you are very weak. 2% of the population here to take over your country and, and it scares you. You are wrong. No one is here to take over your country. No one is here to change your way of life. We have the right to respect our culture, follow our culture. Australia is a multicultural country. So you need to respect us and then we're going to respect you. You're expecting respect but you don't want to respect. It has to stop. And it's not only what we see on the street. It, the racism is in the system. If there is a job, John and Alex and Peter and Muhammad apply for it, is Muhammad going to be shortlisted for that job? Now, racism is in the system. And we got to stop that. We need to hold each other's hand, come to the street, and say no to racism. We don't accept that. We're going to fight until everyone are treated with quality and, uh, with, and respect. That is what we want. Say no to racism. <laughs> Thank you very much, everyone. And now, our next speaker, if anyone read the Age newspaper today, will recognise the lengths that he's willing to go to stand up against racism and stand up against threats of violence against himself and his family. This man over here that the Victoria Police are having a patient conversation with is from the organisation that a man today was arrested for threatening to rape and kill our next speaker. So I think that that says a lot that this is the patient approach the Victorian Police take to neo-Nazis while they pepper spray our people. So in defiance of this, please, um, everybody, make Stephen Jolly, Socialist Party Yarra Councillor, welcome to the stage as our final speaker. Brothers and sisters, what a great thing it is that we, the anti-racists of Melbourne, are here on the streets of Melbourne for the first time in two months after spending weeks after weeks in public meetings, in stalls, in rallies in this city that we can have an anti-racist rally without any racists here, apart from a few oddballs like this guy over here. And that is because you people have been so brave in standing up to reclaim Australia and to the UPF. They are now two months after they started their national initiative here in Melbourne and elsewhere, being reduced to a hardcore rump of thugs who make pathetic attempts to scare and intimidate women and children and elected councillors like me and others through telephone conversations on social media saying they're going to do hits and bashings and killings and so on. This is the true face of the hardcore organised racists in Australia. And you've exposed them through your actions over the last two months. Well done to all of you. How ironic, how ironic by the way, that these people who claim to be patriotic who claim to be the true Australians, are the ones who are importing into this country political methods that we normally see in the likes of Central and South America, of bashings and attempted assassinations and threats of assassination of their political opponents. Let us tell those people that we in Australia get rid of our politicians through a ballot box. And if they want to stand in the election next October, let them stand and we'll see how many votes they get. You'll be able to put them into a telephone box. But the other reason that we're here today is over the course of the last two weeks we've seen 
this absolutely marvelous, organic, grassroots reaction to the racism that Adam Goods faced. And we see him, he's coming back to play tomorrow in Geelong. What a marvelous, what a marvelous statement that makes about the vast majority of Australians who have said no to that racism. And well done to everyone across the country who have stood strong with Adam. But we know, unfortunately, that this is not the end of it. Gert um, Wilders, the far-right Dutch MP, is coming to Australia, he's coming to Perth in October to launch the Australian Liberty Alliance, which will be a more sophisticated, with suits and ties, a much more skillful attempt to create a new far-right organization, political party here in Australia. The Sunday Age said a few days ago that they are hoping to get up to 20% of the vote here in Australia. And I think it would be a huge mistake for anyone here tonight to think that it's only so-called bogans, so-called neo-Nazis and fascists who could potentially look to that as a way forward. Because I speak to you also as a construction worker, and I know, as many of you know, who live in the working class suburbs of this city and in other parts of Australia know, that there are hundreds of thousands, in fact, there are millions of Australians who are worried sick about their future, whose kids go to university or TAFE and are stuck with a hex debt for the rest of their life, who see the cuts to TAFE, who see the fact that we're building suburbs now in Melbourne with no public transport, who see and worry about the cuts to health and education and public transport, and are worried about the future. And these are the people that will be, that this, this new organization will try and tap into. Now we know that the reason for that, the reason for these problems that most of us face, the low pay, the casual work, the insecurity we have in the workplace, it's because we've had 30 years of neoliberal policy, unfortunately backed not only by the Liberal Party, but also by the Labour Party. And the answer to that is we've got to find alternative solutions and a new movement on the left in the same way as what they're trying to do on the right. For example, if we started taxing the rich, can you imagine how much money we would have for health and education and transport and for job creation? 75 Australians earning over a million dollars a year pay no tax. We've seen in the papers that companies like Google and Apple and American Express pay 10% tax or less. Can you imagine if we tax the rich in a more progressive way, how many millions and billions of dollars we would have to solve the problems that breed the conditions for racism in Australia? We've also got a situation that if we nationalize the banks, if we brought in capital controls, we could pay for the type of social programs that would solve the problems that people out in the suburbs are places, facing every day at the present moment in time. And it's the fear of this type of alternative ideas that has led to this Liberal Party government consciously breeding the conditions that Reclaim and the UPF are trying to egg on. We saw Scott Morrison in 2011 tell what was then the shadow cabinet that we have, as the Liberal Party, got to play on the fears of Australians against Muslims. We've seen Brandis talk about the right to be a bigot. We've seen attempts made to take away provisions of the Racial Discrimination Act. We've seen this ridiculous inquiry in the Senate against uh, halal food and uh, attempts by Bronwyn Bishop to ban women wearing the burqa from visiting the federal parliament. And these are the attempts being made to divert attention away from their policies, to justify their treatment of refugees, and to also gain support for their wars in, America, in, the, in the Middle East and Afghanistan. We have to say that we not only do we reject 
those policies. Not only do we reject racism every time it shows its head, but we have got to unite. We have to say to working people, the answer is not through nationalism and dividing and blaming the 2% of Australians who are Muslim. We don't have a lack of doctors and nurses and schools and decent education and you know, unfair tax system because 2% of Australians you know, uh, wear a burqa or eat halal food. It's because of these neoliberal policies. We have to come together, together, not only fight racism, but to build a movement that smashes the conditions that breed racism. That's why I'm a socialist, and that's why I think it's important that not only do we fight racism, but we unite and build a new movement on the left. Because if we don't, they will come back next time in a more sophisticated way. But for now, for now, we have to enjoy the victory. Because over the course of the last two months, we can say that we have vomited out UPF and Reclaim Australia from Melbourne. It's no coincidence that after their last rally, the next rally that they've called is not in Melbourne, it's in Cronulla. And even there, they haven't been able to pull it off. We have done really, really well. We've won the first round. It's going to be a long battle. So let's stay united. Let's get organised. Let's stay united. And we will make sure we build a society where there is no racism. Full stop in this country. Thank you. Hi, this is Mitchell from Cut Copy, and you're listening to 3CR. Please support community radio. Subscribe now. And welcome to this week's edition of Rank and File Radio on Community Radio 3CR. I am the presenter of today's program, Marcus Harrington. Currently in Australia, unions and their members are under constant attack from this conservative anti-worker Liberal government. The latest attack came late at night on Thursday, August 6th, when dozens of workers were once again thrown on the scrap heap by Hutchison Port Australia, fully supported by Senator Abetz. Bob Carnegie, who was recently elected in a landslide result to lead the Queensland branch of the Maritime Union, joins me on the line to discuss the situation faced by workers in Sydney and Brisbane. And welcome back to uh, 3CR, Bob. Oh, thanks, Marcus. How are you going? Oh, very well, yeah. Now there's uh, battles going on all over this country in this time of uh, yeah. attacks on workers and their unions. And yep. um, following your recent election into the state secretary position in the MUA, uh, yep. it was straight into battle for yourself and your union following the announcement uh, handed down on Thursday, August 6th by the uh, company, and it was yet the latest attack on workers. Um, it was late at night, yeah, the company sent text messages, was it? That's it, mate. Yes, I did, and I thought they'd sack, sack 50% of their workforce by a text message at 11.30 at night, last uh, eight days ago, last Thursday week. Okay. What what did the uh, text contain, and what does it mean for these uh, uh, what workers? What it did, it contained, it, it contained uh, the fact that they didn't make, they, did, they weren't suitable employees, and uh, and what their redundancy payment would be. That was about it. Uh, we didn't we didn't wear that one too well, Mark. And so we uh, we decided that we'd we'd fight, and we'd take the company on. And we uh, uh, had we had wonderful support by uh, the entire trade union movement up here in Brisbane and in Queensland generally. And uh, we I think they knew from the start that we we're in for if need be. As I said on on the picket line, it didn't matter if it was a week, a month, a year. We're going to last one day longer than Hutchison's, and um, and we've 
we've been given some relief in the in the uh, by the federal court. But okay. uh, as I as I speak to you now, Hutchison still haven't spoken to the union, so um, we don't know where it's going. But I do know something is that uh, my membership uh, 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 have bonded together ten times stronger than they were at the start of this. Uh, of all these problems, and it's been a wonderful sight to see workers unite. It's been a wonderful thing for uh, trade unions in Queensland for for, the net, to, for them to have a rallying call and a rallying cry. And we've, um, uh, I think, we've achieved some really good things in the last uh, seven days or so, Marcus. Okay, that's good. Are the workers uh, still manning the picket line as we speak? Uh, no, we we went back to work at uh, seven o'clock last. Uh, this morning, but only those who were rostered on. Okay. And um, we, uh, those that were working and those that, that weren't uh, marched to the gates and cheered the guys that went back inside. And uh, where we can put the uh, protest line up in on a minute's notice if we have to mark it. So we're just observing about what Hutchison's up to, and we're not going to be taking any backward steps. Uh, in fighting this huge transnational. Okay, so workers and their unions should be prepared to to fight again or to demand that picket line again. Absolutely, absolutely. Yep. You know, we're not looking for a fight, but we're not going to walk away from one either, Marcus. And currently, this uh, conservative Abbott Liberal government—they've got an agenda to attack workers and smash their unions. And uh, the federal yep. workplace minister, Senator Abetz, uh, made idiotic comments to back this agenda up following the uh, sackings. Yeah, well, look, uh, Abetz made the brilliant call that it's OK to sack people by text message. Uh, you know, I, I wonder if Mr Abetz would like uh, being sacked by, sacked by a text message by the Prime Minister or something. But, look, this Abbott uh, government is just following an agenda that's set by uh, the rich and the powerful of this world, and they're trying to destroy any uh, any organised labour that stands up against it but you know they there's an old saying they knock us down but we get up again and that's what we'll be doing and uh, I'm very proud of the of our members in both the Queensland branch and the uh, Sydney branch of the Maritime Union and but more even even more particular I'm I'm thrilled at the support that we got from the the broad trade union and working class movement and Unions like the ETU, the CFMEU, the, the Miners Federation, they were just magnificent, just just wonderful. And there was also workers in Melbourne at the uh, Woolworths Melbourne Liquor Distribution Centre who yes. walked out uh, through the week over uh, issues against the company engaging in uh, this uh, labour hire um, scam and those workers prepared a video to send up to the workers on the picket line in Brisbane. Magnificent, you know. Uh, uh, I've often made. Uh, I was at a meeting very recently in Sydney, and Dave Oliver was there, the ACTU secretary, and I told him that the biggest threat to workers in this country isn't isn't the Liberal government. It's not a Labor government. The biggest single threat to the work organised labour in this country is labour hire, agency work. As I, I did a speaking tour in Europe about. Uh, four months ago, and I can tell you now that um, labour hire, or as I call it, the uberisation of the workforce, the uberisation of the workforce, it is a huge, huge problem. And if we don't tackle it, eventually we're not organised labour will just 
collapse into a tiny, tiny little trickle. And, um, you know, the trade union movement's got to put its head around it and realise that, um, that, that employers have to be forced once again to directly hire their people. Otherwise, it breaks the nexus of, of the, the axis of employment. And what happens is that all the problems get get uh, thrown back onto the workers' back, and it's not the way to go, mate. And as we know, more than forty percent of Australian workers are employed in this insecure, precarious um, form of employment. Yeah, terrible way to live, Marcus. It's terrible. It's You're almost living by a telephone. I can't. You know, really, we really need to do something. You know, I I know that uh, from my branches that you know we'll. We'll throw what resources we have at to support workers who are who are struggling for a better deal in this world. It's the way we have to be. But unless unless there's some really big fight back against labour hire, it's going to just it's going to break the youth, the labour movement. And really, I think you know the time's come that there should be a, a, a national summit by the unions about labour hire and how we're going to fight it because it's been going on far too long for far too many people. And if we don't if we don't tackle it, the already plummeting rates of, of union density in this country are going to collapse further. And I think this casualisation scourge is by design from the capitalists. I mean, it forces workers to compete against each other, totally anti-union values. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> it atomises the workforce. That's the trouble. It gets you thinking that you're the, you're the only one and you're not, you're not together with anyone else. And that's... Uh, that's a terrible feeling for a working-class person. And in the Hutchison dispute, it was also workers at Sydney and also Brisbane who were affected by these uh, decisions. How many workers at each port were sacked in these uh, there cowardly were, circumstances? There was half out, 41 out of 82 in, in Brisbane and I think um, 57 out of about 120 in, in Sydney. Okay. And But but out of the whole, uh, you know, uh, the great thing that happened in this dispute is that those that kept their jobs and those that were sacked just bonded together as one, and that was an amazing thing. It was wonderful. And from the da- and from the day, uh, from the minute they sacked our m- members until until they went back to work today, there was not one bit of productivity in Hutchison's terminal in Australia. And the current situation, I guess you could say, is reminiscent of the 1998 Patrick's dispute and while the NU... Yeah, and- it's similar. It, there's similarities, but dealing with Hutchison, we're dealing with a much, much bigger operator than what Patrick's were. Okay. So we're dealing with a company of great, far greater wealth and influence, um, and uh, but we're uh, we're we're wary, but we're confident that we can um, we can succeed and uh, and make sure that our uh, that we can sit down with this out this uh, transnational octopus and and at least. Um, mitigate and negotiate some sort of an arrangement about their so-called economic problems they're facing in Australia. Yeah, what lessons could be drawn out of the 1998 dispute in order to win the current dispute, Bob? Um, look, I, I think there's some very basic things. I think there's the uh, one has to always remember the sanctity of the picket line, the um, how important it is for workers to have a rallying call and a rallying point uh, that the only way we can go forward is if we're united, if we're uh, we believe in each other, and uh, I saw all those great values come to fore in this in this dispute, and it was very touching to see young people, you know, the young workforce this time. The Patrick's workforce was much older, okay, and 
the, it was a young workforce. Many of them had come to start a new life in the stevedoring industry, and uh, and the company had purposely chosen, thinking that they wouldn't bond very much with their union. But uh, the company was completely miscalculated and uh, underestimated the the passion that these working people had for for defending their union and defending their way of life. And while Hutchison, they may say the sackings were needed for company restructure, uh, what would you say, Bob, are the real reason behind these uh, mass sackings? Uh, I think automation without negotiation was the main one and to, uh, and to attempt to de-unionise their workforce. OK, and there's another... Both counts, they were defeated. OK, that's another issue facing, I suppose, the organised labour movement is... Uh, the introduction of automated uh, workplaces uh, can't be good for the oh, economy. Surely, it's a huge. It's a it's a it's a major problem. It's um, it's a major problem, but it's not up there with um, with labour hire. Labour hire is the number one. We we have to do something about about the growth of labour hire companies and the use of it to uh, try to quell dissent within the workforce and how effective it is in quelling that dissent. Okay, and of course the federal court handed the decision down on Thursday in yeah. relation to the sackings. Thursday uh, what, night, yes. What was the... Uh, well, what federal court, the, the federal court uh, decided that the, the sackings had to be rescinded. So what happened there is that the, work, the workers had to be re, have to be reinstated to the position that they were pro, prior to the 11.30 at night uh, um, sacking by text. So, um, yeah, so it, it was a, a fair decision by the... Federal Court, and uh, we just hope that Hutchison uh, abide by it. Um, and we'll just, the coming hours and days will certainly uh, show us whether they are going to or not. Okay, and it's also a good sign the workers there also defied a court order, was it, earlier in the week alongside the uh, Woolworths uh, workers no, in there, Melbourne? There, there was uh, uh, some orders by the um, by the Fair Work Commission that. Um, whether they had been relayed properly to the workforce at hand is debatable, but, but um, whatever it was is that um, the workforce uh, maintained the unity of the picket line, which is essential. And that's the key. I mean, what you can't hold at the gate, you won't win at the negotiating table, Bob. That's, that's it, Marcus. Norm Gallagher had a saying which said, what you won't win on the street, you'll never... What you can't win in the street, you'll never win in the courts. And that's very, very true. Still true today. Okay. Still true today, absolutely. Yep. Thanks uh, for coming on Rank and File Radio Thanks. today, Bob, to talk right, about so the Hutchison decision. Real honour, real honour, Marcus. And, and you take good care of yourself, and comrade. Keep up the fight, Bob. Thanks, comrade. Yeah, always. That's what we're here for, mate. That's in the take struggle care, buddy. And that was Bob Carnegie from the Queensland branch of the Maritime Union of Australia talking about the Hutchison dispute. I've been the presenter of Rank and File Radio, Marcus Harrington. Tune in next Saturday from 8 a.m. And we will talk to Jimmy O'Connor from the South Australian branch of the CFMEU. Ah, fantastic. (coughs) Two lovely blokes. (laughs) Yeah, two lovely blokes. Fantastic. Um, Actually, uh, uh, we have a fellow who rings up this station who keeps an eye on us, and he's probably listening to us right now. uh, Keeps us in line. Keeps us in line. And he uh, was telling me he... uh, talked about uh, Norm Gallagher the other day and he was saying that, uh, have you noticed how all the union uh, blokes uh, have uh, $1,000 suits 
sitting at the table, Norm always wore cardigans. <laughs> <laughs> Every time we go to the theatre, not that often, my dad reminds me, oh, this theatre's here because of Norm Gallagher. That's right. That's what he says too. Anyway, um, the uh, uh, I, I, I collected a couple of jokes this uh, week and I'm not particularly good at telling jokes, but they were tell funny. Them. They're funny enough to tell. One of them was uh, a, a picture, there's a picture of a hand dryer and underneath it, it says, press the button for a speech from Bill Shorten, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. And then the next one, which even uh, raised a bigger laugh, which was uh, Angela Merkel. She was uh, going to Greece at recently and uh, she was just going through immigration and she and the immigration officer said to her, occupation, and she says, no, just visiting. <laughs> Oh God! On a more scary, yeah, it's all scary. On a more serious note, on Solidarity Breakfast this morning, we have to tell you that there's a rally uh, for ma- uh, marriage equality, which is going to be happening on today at one pm at the State Library. At the State Library, I think it's going to be a big one. People are quite outraged by what uh, Abbott has been doing in his own party. Yeah, it's quite weird, isn't it? I, I, I actually woke up the other day and heard that this is what he was doing, that uh, there wouldn't be a, a, a um, conscience or a vote, you know, what the, a free vote. That's what they're calling it, free. They're, they're chucking free around all over the place. I thought it was called a conscience vote, but they've obviously decided that's got too many religious overtones. Yes, the PR people must have crossed it off. Yeah, crossed it off the list anyway. Yeah, I thought, oh, he wants to lose the election. <laughs> Well, he's going about it the right way. I thought it was a a treasurer's moment, you know, like just get a better job. (laughs) Good on you, Joe. And uh, the other thing that's important is that there's going to be a rally, uh, Stop Turkey's War on the Kurds, which is uh, next uh, uh, Saturday, August the 29th, 11am. And uh, that's going to be at Federation Square. So put that in your diary because uh, things are hotting hotting up in that side of the world. Uh, And we'll be talking to Noah later about that. Mm, no doubt Tony Abbott wants to send um, some welcome planes as well. Yes, that's right, with flags. With flags. Don't forget the flags. Oh, and how the, could I? And the other thing that should be on your calendar is Corinderk. Corinderk, which is a play that's uh, uh, been around for a little while, but it's a great play. It's about uh, the 1881 uh, investigation into... Uh, uh, the Aboriginal community Kurunduk, which was inspired by uh, the uh, continual work of the Aboriginal people on Kurunduk uh, for an inquiry into self-determination in, on that particular piece of land. And now often people believe that uh, the fight for land uh, uh, has been inspired by uh, Europeans uh, in tandem with uh, Aboriginal people, but it's not true. Aboriginal people have been fighting ever since Europeans stepped on this shore. And Kurunduk is a perfect example of how this uh, is uh, done. Uh, it's uh, taken from the uh, transcripts from the actual uh, uh, hearings, which is fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Wow. Beautifully put together. And it's at La Mama and it's going on till uh, August the 23rd, Sunday, August the 23rd. Uh, they're also going around the countryside as well. So uh, if you're in Benalla, uh if you're in Stratford, if you're in uh, Upper Yarra, uh, Hillsville or uh, Curran Rock, you can also uh, have a look around for when they do performances. So there you go. And now we should hurry up unless we want people ringing us up because Kevin Healy is about to tell us about the week that was. A weak solidarity, Briggy team listener, when look... 
Look, let's start off by being bitchy. How sad it was. How compassionate we felt as we watched Paul Bronny looking so sad, stuck on the back of the back benches Monday. Paul Bronny, we thought. Poor, poor Bronny. Probably the chance to gloat would be the only reason we'd bother to watch the crap that masquerades as television news. On those like Bronnie, devoted to their issues, can't understand all the fuss over Her Most Gracious Majesty's Kanga Mission hanging judge Dyson not hiding his bias, addressing a caring business class party fundraiser. As a man of great integrity and principle who has served capitalist law so assiduously and, might I say modestly, with great honour, I felt the caring business class party, having given me this brief to smash the evil trade union movement, with so generous a remuneration on top of my high court pension, I had a moral obligation to give something back to the caring business class party for their greatly appreciated largesse with the public purse, over and above the report I've written sentencing the evil unions to death. Uh, but the hearings, the, the farce is still going on. Well, uh, yeah, yes, well, we'll write, we'll write. Note it's not called the Kanker mission into alleged union corruption. Oh, no, it obviously knows there is corruption. Tiny said he would defend the integrity of an esteemed jurist. This great true blue Aussie has the integrity to ignore the facts and get rid of the evil unions. Get rid of the evil, corrupt unions. Notice the ACTU said it would consider boycotting the Kanga mission, and surely they should have done that from the start, not give it any credibility. After all, you can't treat with contempt something that treats you with such contempt. By the way, after all those sensational P1 evil union headlines arising from untested statements by Dyson's chamber's mate, the Crown Prosecutor, anyone looking for the bias story in the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, keep looking. Clue? Left-hand page next to cute dingo puppies and woman in swim gear. Notice also, like Brody, the old Dyson suddenly had this burst of moral integrity after the proverbial hit the fan. But Dyson and Tiny do believe we should go through the motions before passing the death sentence. But, but given True Blue Aussie's propensity to grovel before, uh, sorry, adopt the great culture of the US, of the UN, of the US of the world, we can expect law changes any time, sensibly declaring crossing a line without giving a signal and driving after your front number plate has fallen off a capital offence. More so a summary justice capital offence, execution on the spot. Sort of the execution version of on-the-spot fines. Uh, with the obvious qualification that the offender must be black. And well, given our legal system already has the black criminal situation under control by sensibly again making being black a crime, that shouldn't pose any problems at all other than we have tended to wait to get them back to the cells before the summary execution. On evil unions, we talked last week of that neoliberal productivity profits con mission report recommending abolishing wages and conditions for lazy, avaricious workers, but any lingering doubt this might not be the best thing for workers was extinguished by that champion of socialist struggle, Martin Cliché, 
quoted in turn by some nondescript Western Trublawazi caring business class senator who said the Socialist Party could not portray itself as a champion of the workers if it opposed recommendations to abolish wages and conditions. The report has been broadly welcomed by business, by economists, and even by some lions of the union movement who put job creation ahead of playing politics. Don't need a heap of imagination to take an accurate stab at just who this lion of the union movement is. Yes, Marty Cliche, who said dismissing the report would, at the end of the day, only be to the detriment of workers. I was going to say some people's lion is other people's scratch-my-belly-and-I'll-purr-kitten, but we surely have more respect for the kitten than to say that. And part of the report that hasn't had a lot of publicity is that the rights of workers to take action on unfair dismissal be declared unfair. That tiny and team true blue Aussie introduce a much fairer no-fault dismissal system allowing workers to be sacked. Uh, sorry, sadly let go at will. Balaclava's back on the wharves and all that with a paid notice period. Although the con mission itself said it did foresee the odd problem with this. Like I hear you say, caring employers could just sadly let go staff at will. Well, no, 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 no. They were worried bloody evil workers might exploit this, deliberately engage in misconduct in order to get the payout. See, obviously workers are desperate to be unemployed. And the con mission just as obviously knows just how evil workers are. This report for the Minerals Profits Council of True Blue Aussie seeks to solve that problem with a very practical solution. Get the evil unions out of the equation altogether. If unions weren't involved in negotiations, workers would be far better off they report. There is evidence that greater competition in the provision of collective bargaining services would enhance the performance of True Blue Aussie's labour market. Opening up trade unions to greater competition is not an anti-union measure. Of course not. Who'd think that? It's a wonderful thing, competition policy, isn't it? Uh, yes, the Minerals Profits Council volunteered. We would be more than happy to represent our workers in negotiations with us. Unlike evil unions who only see one side of the story, we believe we are capable of representing both sides of this no such thing as class struggle negotiation, ourselves and them, through which we can achieve a win-win situation. Indeed, <laughs> a win-win-win situation. Sadly, lose, lose, lose. Tragedy. They seem to be having a bit of trouble sorting out this trans-Pacific not-so-free trade agreement. Unfortunately, some selfish, minor, nondescript countries like Trublawazi, for instance, seem to think free trade for us, after all, US, US is spelt us, extends to free trade for them. The US have made a very strong point. They have no respect for the Washington rules, the Washington World Trade Rules. Uh, but you keep telling us we are your closest of close friends. And you certainly are my close, close friend. Uh, which lucky, uh, sorry, which country did you say you were from again? The true blue Aussie Minister for Trading Our Rights, Andrew Robb, no need to play with his name, Andrew disputed the US of claim. 
as a very, very, very close friend and comrade in train killing, we have jumped every time the US of has said jump. We are a true friend of the US of, and they respect us for that. Uh, but Andrew, what if we just once said no? Don't talk hypotheticals. Uh, but isn't it called the Trans-Pacific? Uh, yes, yes, that's right, the Trans-Pacific US of Trade Our Rights Treaty. And good news, we are about to jump again to join the US of in further muddying the Middle East waters we so muddied when we headed there on the last pack of lies. And I heard Socialist Party Deputy Supremo Tania Plibber, don't check your facts, say our invasion of Iraq was legal. Uh, since when? Mentioned those balaclavas back on the wharves looking, uh, lock, locking sadly let go workers out. The Minister for the Caring Business Class, Eric Betts on the Bosses, said this showed how evil workers were. Cheap <laughs> little thinker, Eric. Sadly, we're seeing all these conservative men coming to verbal blows as Tiny gets his way over marriage equality. Well, he knows his view is the only view that matters. After all, he's big supremo. And after, after all, he does list the late and unlamented B.A. Santa Maria as, as his inspiration. And like Tiny, B.A. St. Mary believed his view of Catholic morality should be national law, govern the country. Indeed, as an aside, heading off on a tangent, Tiny and another great inspiration, Cardinal George Pauling, a.k.a. Pell Pot, have been forced, as great men of faith, to criticise Illa Papa, Franga I, Franga Illa Primo, over his utter crap about climate change. Sadly, he is talking utter crap because his eminence and I know that his subject matter is utter crap, is utter crap. Well, back to conservative men coming to blows. Branch stacking, one said, when Tiny brought in the hayseed and sheepshit lot to make a lay-down of the vote. Plebiscite, some argue. Referendum, some argue. Even Attorney General George Brandy's brain points out Parliament can just legislate. A referendum is redundant. A, a massive waste of public funds. <clears throat> Gay marriage that worsens. Yesterday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review headline. George and Minister for Social Insecurity scuttled their more lash son coming to blows. Marriage split, and I thought, here we are seeing numerous cases of same-sex divorce. Tiny's obsessions leading to same-sex divorce. And then I thought, how can it be divorce when they don't allow marriage, aren't allowed to get married in the first place? So don't tell me they're all living in same-sex sin. Tiny encouraging sin? Quick, get George Apolli on the phone. Oh, oh, no, no, sorry, he's too busy in same-sex divorce proceedings with Illa Papa. Finally, interesting the Machiavellian manoeuvre that saw the issue dominate the front pages and lead news items for a day or two also buried the burying their heads in the sand non-action on that utter crap, climate change. Also Machiavellian, perhaps? Good morning. And we've got Noah on the line. How are you, Noah? Good, thanks, Annie. How are you? Good. We Hi, went... Noah. <laughs> Hello. And, and Kim. Who, who have you got with you this Kim. morning? Kim. Kim is with me. Oh, how are you, Kim? It's nice yeah. to talk to you. Yeah, oh, nice, nice to talk to you as well. I just had to interrupt Moment of Truth by Blue King Brown. So uh, we're now on to more Moments of Truth, Noah. Hopefully. 
Yeah. Um, you, we uh, were talking about uh, the Turkish government's uh, using the attack on ISIS as a cover for uh, attacking the Kurds, and uh, you were in uh, furious agreement. Yes, I mean, uh, all, all the reports that have come out have suggested that uh, uh, the Turkish government is, you know, very, very much... Uh, uh, sort of involved in a, um, you know, not even that secretive war against uh, the Kurds. Uh, there seem to be two elements. I was talking to, a, I think I mentioned to you in the email that a friend of mine who knows a lot more about the Kurdish situation than I do suggests that the Turkish government is concerned about two aspects of um, what's happening in the Kurdish area of uh, Turkey and Syria, and that is, uh, the first is this sense of... Um, potential unification of the area, uh, which would challenge the, the sort of uh, divide between Syria, Iraq and um, and Turkey, um, you know, in time leading to a redrawing of the boundaries. Uh, but the more important I- issue he said to me was that um, these areas had started to demonstrate the effectiveness of secular and socialist uh, organisation. Uh, they've They've have relative semi-autonomy, and in doing so, they've uh, produced pretty successful uh, societies that, uh, despite the fact that they're involved in uh, um, uh, war and, uh, you know, there's an area without a great deal of wealth, they're making huge strides in uh, sort of raising living standards and building better societies. So that really challenges the... Uh, Turkish government's model. You know, uh, Noah, on that theme, there's been an awful lot of work done in the, that those communities on uh, gender equality as well, and that is also a powerful message. Oh, absolutely. I mean, on, on, on a whole range of levels. Uh, the, I think from what I'm hearing and the little bit I've read, uh, what's happening in the Kurdish areas is a real uh, sort of uh, sort of challenge. It's offering a completely different paradigm for uh, social uh, organisation than the sort of Islamist model that's being used in uh, Turkey, uh, which, yeah, has incredible gender inequalities involved in it, as well as economic uh, economic ones. So, it's interesting because... Yeah, and that's one reason why I think it's received... What's happened to the Kurds receives so little press, because, of course, the international... Um, media uh, really wants to protect this notion that the neoliberal model is the only way to to move forward. Yeah, it's interesting because I was wondering, is there a class element to this as well? They don't want the example, or they can't have the alternative political model set as an example to others because Turkey is quite far along in, in terms of its neoliberal project, from what I understand. Yes, I mean, uh, you know, it's... It, the Turkish, uh, you know, under the Akba, the um, Turkish Islamist uh, government, they've moved neoliberalism, uh, you know, they've been incredibly uh, adherent to the World Bank IMF model since the early 2000s. And yes, it has led to economic growth. Uh, Turkish economy has grown um, because it's opened itself up to global capital, a lot of it's Saudi capital. Um, Ah, the Saudis again. Yeah, well, and you know, the Saudis do support Islamist governments when, you know, they're aligned with uh, Saudi interests. Um, 
And, you know, it's led to huge issues in terms of social stratification, inequality, gender issues. Um, and it's really polarised uh, Turkish society um, in a number of ways. I mean, Turkey had a uh, almost a half century of you know, strong secular uh, government under the sort of Kemalist system, and that's not perfect. I'm not here romanticising about the sort of model that was um, that the Tur- Turkish government had, but it was clearly led to fairer outcomes in a whole range of areas than what they've had since 2000. Because was it true that the Gezi Park, the movement there, a lot of it was about the fact that the government was taking all the green spaces and basically turning them into giant um, property developments um, and turning the capital into a bit of a financial hub? Yes, I think the the Gezi Park um, outburst or protest, and very spontaneous, I think brought together a whole range of issues that... uh, um, people had, uh, and, and it, I mean, it was a, largely an anti-government uh, uh, rally, clearly. But on a range of dish, different issues, that brought them together. Of course, the the immediate one was the the sort of sell-off of this park to developers and the sense of corruption and nepotism which had seeped into the system. Um, the second was the sort of uh, opposition to neoliberalism and privatisation and, and the sort of user-pay system which uh, the party has pushed along for some time. And third was the sort of creeping Islamisation of uh, Turkish society, which, you know, sort of in, in many countries goes hand-in-hand with neoliberalism. Um, there's this strange um, uh, connection or um, synthesis between the two and that Islamists uh, in many countries have seen uh, private uh, neoliberalism as a way of dismantling the state and and um, outsourcing those activities of the state to Islamic groups, and which leads to greater Islamization of the society in Tunisia, Egypt. I mean, these things came back to to sort of over lead to the overthrow in some ways of people like uh, Ben Ali in Tunisia and um, Mubarak in. Egypt. I mean, it's more complex than that, but that was one element of the way that they had reorganised society uh, in ways that really empowered the Islamists. And then the Islamists, you know, at a point became powerful enough to challenge the government. That's fascinating. It's mm-hmm. like a connection between religion, fundamentalism and uh, neoliberalism, which is a, an economic fundamentalism. And it brings to mind this thing that I remember reading about uh, the British journalist Saki was sitting in a, a restaurant overlooking a major square in Moscow when there was, or Petersburg, when there was a, a, a rebellion. This was before the actual uh, revolution. And uh, standing at the uh, the top of the uh, uh, in front of the big uh, expensive building were the uh, religious people as well as the state people, and then the army came and killed all the people in the square while he was in a in a restaurant overlooking. Yeah, yeah. isn't that well, extraordinary? I mean, Very similar. I mean, religious groups. Uh, have long been very close to power. I mean, the events in South America, which have been well chronicled by a whole range of authors, including Noam Chomsky, have shown how the Catholic Church was, you know, closely, the leadership of the Catholic Church was uh, closely aligned with the right-wing dictators right through the 1980s and in some cases were part of the establishment that um, 
that uh, uh, you know were were complicit in you know um, murders and torture and a whole range of other activities. I'm not saying that they were involved in it, but certainly they were part of the architecture of that those right wing states, which is of course the same as uh, imperialism in general. Yes, and I mean here we have a similar phenomenon. It's, it's not, certainly not as extreme yet, but there are. Um, uh, sort of glimpses into what might be the future here when you see the sort of emergence of right-wing fundamentalist uh, political um, um, affiliations and, you know, the right wing of the Liberal Party has clearly become... Uh, over has been sort of overtaken by uh, right-wing fundamentalist um, evangelical um, uh, religious ideals and, and beliefs, and most of those are uh, very much aligned with neoliberalism. The belief in the market, the belief that activity shouldn't be run by the state but should be undertaken by private organisations, and in their view, the best private organisations to look after many of the responsibilities of the state are religious ones, religious schools, religious charities, uh, um, re- sort of... Uh, Catholic care. Occupying occupying the space that traditionally in the 19th and 20th century was occupied by a secular state. That's interesting because we earlier in the program we were talking about uh, the uh, Australian uh, Law Commission's uh, investigation into freedoms in Australia and uh, the neoliberal uh, academic that's just been put on to that uh, uh, body, uh, Ratnapala, who's a Queensland academic was quoted as saying in a speech at Tim Wilson's Freedom of Speech Symposium, he said rights were not necessarily the same as freedom. Mm. That's a killer, isn't it? Yes, I mean, Tim Wilson, I I went to a talk that Tim Wilson gave where I was astounded by his definition of secularism and freedom. And in his view, um, secularism is about anti-being non-religious, and I think that's entirely incorrect because the traditional mm. now and i think the definitions and the uh, and the uh, consensus in um is that secularism is the separation of state power and and religious ideals that is people can be religious as much as they want their private lives but the public sphere has to remain religious free that was always the way that um that uh, secularism was understood. And the way that I understood Tim Wilson's explanation of it was that you had religious, uh, you had religion on one side and secular secularism on the other, and that's entirely incorrect. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the attitude of uh, many of the people in, in the Liberal Party uh, today, that is, that anyone who claims to be secular is actually opposed to religion per se. And, you know, that sort of... Um, attitude leads to the sort of attacks on secularism that we've we've seen. Yeah, I think it's interesting to think about. I think that the whole um, what you were talking about using, I think it's using religion to cohere people because it seems to coincide quite a lot with nationalism, and it makes me think actually a bit about uh, Stalin, um, you know, and atheism there was I think partly that was actually about trying to rule over a very large area where there were many different religions and he wanted to unify the nation. And I wonder if it's a similar thing happening in Turkey using religion to try and unify around a nation and a national border that has been manufactured in most cases by imperialism. 
I mean, that's interesting. I, 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 maybe there is that element to it. I tend to think that it has a lot to do with centralising power. Religion becomes a way of centralising power, and especially when you claim that the religious ideals that you have are the correct and all others are incorrect, then it gives you a great deal of power, cultural power, to impose yourself on a society. And we've seen in a number of countries how uh, religion has become a, uh, an arena of, um, of struggle between different elements of society. Um, about, as far as I can... I mean, the, the thing about the, the nationalist... Many of the nationalist models were, in the 19th and earliest 20th century, were, they were attempted to be inclusive... Um, that is, they constructed a sense of nationalism that allowed for uh, other groups to be brought into it. I, I mean, Australia is a good example in a, in a way. I mean, the, the Australian national identity was reshaped multiple times in the 19th and 20th centuries to allow non-core groups into the national... Uh, to what The national the story. Yeah, so, I mean, it started off as British, uh, English mm. and Protestant, then it became mm. British when the Irish were sort of brought in. Well, the Celts were allowed. That was the yeah. big moment when uh, Paul Keating went to, made an official visit to Ireland. That was a really yeah. big deal. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, yeah. Um, and then, you know, slowly Southern Europeans that came here after World War II have been brought into this sense of the national identity. So you get in the World Cup in whatever it was. That's right, soccer. Mm. Uh, you get uh, Croatian uh, Croat people from Croatian background here in Australia able to to sort of uh, wear a Croatian flag on one. Mm, that's right. Uh, yep, and an Australian on the other, without the media or anyone else questioning their loyalty to Australia. That that suddenly became okay. Okay. Mm. Um, but you know what we've seen, I think, in in sort of the last decade, probably since the 1990s, is a sense that that national boundary enlargement has stopped. So Asians and especially Muslims have no long, are no longer... There's no longer a method to bring them into the national story. Mm. And but, I think, yeah, yeah, go on, sorry. And I, I think now we've got, uh, you know, this, the, the part of the neoliberal uh, and the new capitalism is to actually create um, division. It, it's... A, it, it's in the interest of those in power to create divisions in society to deflect animosity from the shortcomings of the economic and political system onto uh, people who are seen as uh, as responsible or, or potentially responsible for those problems. So here we have refugees, we have uh, Muslims, uh, we have Chinese investment as being the key problems that Australia has, not the inequalities and the... Um, uh, social problems that are caused. And the incredible uh, incompetence of the government. Uh, incompetence of the government that, and the nepotism and the corruption within the sort of political economic system today that leads to in, huge inequalities and unfairness in our system. So, I mean, I, there's a lot of what's happening with for me with asylum seekers and Islamophobia and the renewed uh, sort of race, ra racial, heightened racial politics with Indigenous Australians. Yeah. Um, which has a and and gender issues, which are back on the yeah back on um, the agenda in, in a really intense and and, and quite frightening way. Yes, I agree. Um, I, I think is very much about creating these divisions in society so that we can't unify 
to challenge the dominant system. Yeah, I think that's what's going on too. This is, I mean, it's uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and we're talking to Dr. Noah Pazil uh, about things in general. Uh, I just uh, we're coming to the end of this, but in the last ten minutes, I, I wanted to bring up this issue that came up last night. Someone was talking about how the railways in India. Uh, created those railway stations which were part of the uh, English imperialist uh, plan in India uh, created a no man's land uh, where people were able to do things that they weren't allowed to do within their own uh, ethical and religious structures so uh, an Indian uh, Muslim could go and eat pork in no man's land and, right. uh, you know, things like that, right? And the concept that I'm coming up with is this notion that uh, uh, outside they were... Uh, it, it just seemed to me that this uh, no man's land concept where people do things that they shouldn't do in private, uh, in public, they do in private. And it uh, people who are then enthusiastic nationalists, enthusiastic racists, enthusiastic neoliberals in public but do things in private that are not necessarily in line with that, are more humanist. Uh, Their public stance, uh, this is how they get groups of people to do dreadful things. Uh, if you do you get my gist it's like how Germany how the Germans became uh, involved in the Nazi conspiracy effectively because it became too dangerous in public to be anything other than that and I and they're creating that same kind of a fear analogy in using neoliberalism as there's no there's no alternative uh, uh, we have to concentrate together uh, on these scapegoats, even though if they were broken down, they wouldn't actually behave in this manner. Yes, yeah. I mean, I, 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 there's no. Uh, numerous people have said that and have shown how neoliberalism has become a common sense today. And when, when it, when something becomes common sense, uh, or, or what uh, some academics call hegemonic, um, it, it, it really uh, reshapes the way that. Society Society and individuals think and and, um, and and sort of act, and that and the behaviour, the sort of embedded behaviours that become normal, now just reproduce neoliberalism even more. So you know the idea is now that the weekends are that we no longer have weekends. I mean that might seem a really um, you know trivial issue, but in fact it, it sort of demonstrates how pervasive um, consumerism and um, economic rationality has become in the way that we think about the world. Um, now, you know, it's it's that that sort of uh, sort of dominance of the system that really makes it uh, difficult to challenge it. And I I just want to come to what's happening in the UK, if I may, for a moment, with the the sort of potential for a very radical change in Labor leadership. As a way of demonstrating how yeah, you know, go on. That's I'm fascinated by this. I mean, I've just been reading about. I've been reading about it all all week as much as I could because I am also fascinated by the sort of what seems to be a a, a moment in British politics where the neoliberal dominance is starting to be challenged. Mm. People um, are looking for an alternative, desperate for an alternative. Are. I mean, famously said that her greatest achievement was New Labour. That's right. Oh. Which, I mean, what she said, I mean, what, 
that is the dominance of neoliberalism. That is that the there is no opposite. The opposition can no longer oppose it. Was you know, and and she did say that her government was an attempt, and and you know how it followed this. Sorry, one of the reasons I'm so interested in what's happening in Britain is because I believe, to some extent, uh, events in Britain tend to ripple through to Australia at some point. So explain to people, I mean, I'm sure that a lot of people who are listening are quite aware of what's going on, but just give it, encapsulate it. Um, well, the Labor, after the loss at the last election, Labor has had a period of introspection and, uh, and, and now they're in a, at a point where they need to elect a new leader. And a long-time radical, considered radical left-wing member of the party, Jeremy Corbyn... Despite not having two heads. Sorry? Despite not having two heads. Not having two heads, even though he's been de- depicted as having just about every other fault, um, um, is the front-runner. He's become a very popular figure in the Labor Party because he has challenged some of the assumptions that Labor has worked under since Tony Blair came to power in uh, the early 90s, and that is that he wanted, he wants to reinvigorate uh, Labor through its tradi- traditional Labor values. Um, and he's, he's abandoned the neoliberal model as much as he can. So, he's, I mean, for example, he's saying that he, he's challenging the idea that uh, debt was the major cause of the GFC, and he said the the the, um, the negligence and the um, um, sort of self interest of the banks was the key reason. So you know he's talking truth. What to he's power. telling the truth? Yeah, what we call truth to power, and mm. this has rallied the Labor faithful around him. And you know, if if there was a poll held today from all reports, he would become the new Labor leader. The other thing that he said that, and he's maintained very strongly since the early 2000s is that uh, the war in Iraq was illegal. Yeah. It was a crime against humanity. Yep. And the leaders of the major powers that were involved in it should be indicted and held accountable. That's right. And this is one reason why Tony Blair, who, of course, is one of those key leaders, has been so vocal mm. in, in demonising Corbyn and and calling out to the Labor faithful not to allow the party to be hijacked by a radical. And um, so he's, he's not only... Fe- he, he, of course, but he's worried about his legacy, but he's also, I think, worried about the potential that someone like Corbyn could become a pro- next Prime Minister of Britain. Worried about his own skin. And his own skin. So there's a lot of issues happening here. But what is really interesting is that Corbyn has been able to rally people behind him by challenging some of the assumptions around the the uh, sort of inevitability uh, and universality of neoliberalism. Yeah, the neoliberal discourse. Because the Blairites were saying the reason they lost the election was because they weren't right-wing enough. Yes. Well, they would, yeah. wouldn't they? Yes, well, he's come, well, and Scotland showed that that was incorrect. I mean, Scotland was swept up by a party that is on the left of the Labour Party, well, left of the... No, no, but, yeah, well left of the Labor Party, current Labor Party. Which wouldn't be too hard. Yes, we, yes. But, you know, and, and that, I mean, that, I think that was 22 seats or... Yeah, yeah, it's huge. Or, it was huge. Yeah, yeah, it was a large proportion of seats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was all um, but two, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, they creamed them. They creamed um, them. So, so, you know, this is the sort of thing. I think what we, what Labor needs to do uh, in the UK and certainly here in Australia is rediscover some of the oppositional politics 
of the 19th and 20th century that really defined it. Because yeah. at the moment, there's really not, nothing to distinguish Labor in the UK from the Tories and nothing to distinguish Labor in Australia from the Conservatives, the Liberal Party. And I have to say, Noah, on that prophetic note, we have to bid you adieu. Thank you very much. It's been a great conversation this morning. Thanks, yeah. Noah. Thanks, Noah. Thanks, thanks, guys. Bye. 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 And that's it for Solidarity Breakfast. We have to get out of here. We've uh, spoken to you about the Freedom Commission. We've talked to you about what's uh, happened uh, down at the Speak Out on, uh, for No Room for Racism on Friday the 7th of uh, August. And uh, we've just had a, a wonderful conversation with Noah about the uh, future of politics in the world. Too broad to encapsulate. Too broad to encapsulate. And we're going out with uh, uh, Two-Face... <laughs> <laughs> Radio edit from Sincerely Grizzly and uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.